Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to the 12th episode of Season 10 of the Tom Petty Project Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. This is the podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. I'm just wanted to give a quick shout out right at the top here uh, to my other podcast, Seaside Pod Review, which I record with Mr. Randy Woods, the guy who does all the awesome guitar licks for this podcast. Um, we'll be releasing our second episode and the first one to feature the spin of the Wheel of Queen um, tomorrow as you listen to this. Um, I'll leave a link in the episode notes if you want to go check that one out. It's a bit more lighthearted and conversational and we are having a ton of fun doing it. Today's episode wraps up the songs on Long After Dark, as we're looking at the hugely melodic and easy-feeling closer, A Wasted Life. I've left a link in the episode notes so that you can go listen to the track before we start, and once you've refreshed your memory, we can dig in. That was another one where the record turned out to be an entirely different arrangement than what I came in with. This is how Tom describes this song to Paul Zolo in Conversations with Tom Petty. And there have been a few of these types of songs on this album, where the band really had to work to find the bones of the track and get inside it. And this again highlights the reason Tom always wanted to be in a band, rather than be a solo artist playing with hired guns. He had the guys in the band to bounce ideas off when he started to hit any creative roadblocks. And he goes on to say that after deciding to do something completely different with it, we just played it once with Benmont out in front, and that's the way it came out. Completely different is probably the best way to describe this song. It doesn't sound at all like anything else in the catalogue, and a lot of it is down to Benmont's sumptuously Caribbean-flavoured organ lead. We actually get a twin attack of keyboards on this one, and my guess is that Tom's playing the Prophet synth and laying down those tonal pads in the background while Benmont's playing that lead on, I suspect, probably his Vox organ. And I would guess this because Tom seems to be saying in the book that this was cut basically live off the floor and i only hear one guitar part throughout most of the track um, and you're immediately immersed in what i believe the kids these days call a vibe you know you can easily slip into an imaginary beachside lounger or swim up bar out in the sun somewhere maybe it's the end of the day and the sun is gently setting behind you and that's the imagery that i get from the instrumentation and the arrangement on this one i love the lush sweep of that synth in the background there's no attack on it and it just glides around underneath the melody of the song without being intrusive Maybe the original arrangement had strummed guitars or something, and you could see how that would be a little bit less effective than those warm, gentle synth pads. Phil Jones is credited with percussion on this album throughout, and I'm pretty certain he'd be the one playing those congas and adding in that little bit of Latin flair. There's a very gentle kick drum underneath that rhythm, and probably the hi-hat being played lightly with the foot rather than being struck with a drumstick. And the overall effect is, as I say, a very comfortable, lazily winding melody that kind of sticks in your brain long after it finishes. It's a fairly short intro to this one. It's four bars, um, with Mike also adding in some you know, very small detailed guitar licks and Howie's bass, which reminds me a little of the intro to Billy Joel's Innocent Man. All very peaceful, all very low-key. Tom's vocal delivery really complements the whole thing as he drops back into that really lazy drawl, blending the syllables together and taking you know, all the attack off the sibilant notes. So no sharp edges here, folks. Just a warm, treacly voice gently weaving its way through the percussion synth landscape. The chord progression of the verses is incredibly simple. Four bars in B major, two in A, and then two back to B major. Uh, and on that change to A, it almost feels like it's a suspended chord, but it, it isn't. And I think that's down to the melodic choices Tom is making vocally. 
the refrain, the title of the song, you know, Don't Have a Wasted Life, comes in right in the verses, providing a cap on the seventh of each eight bars. And again, if this was live off the floor, Mike Campbell shows just why he's one of the all-time great guitarists. In the first half of that, you know, in, in, of that first verse, he sits on the bass notes of his guitar, and I'd bet a decent amount of money that it's a Fender Telecaster. And then in the second sort of half of that first verse, he moves up the mid-frequency to ring out some light chords. So again, just that sort of, that inventive, instinctive uh, feeling of, of playing the song and listening to what the song needs and just finding the right notes to play. All throughout, how he's just keeping that same rhythm, moving along on the bass, and he almost takes place of a drum kit in a way because he's playing so percussively. The end of that second half of the first verse leads us into the chorus a little unexpectedly as it comes in a bar earlier than you might actually expect. The chord progression then changes to a first, fourth, fifth pattern on each bar with Tom singing those uh-uh-ohs over the top. The lead into the second verse also changes things up timing-wise a little bit and adds in an extra bar before there's a slightly heavier guitar chord on the one count, or maybe it's a bit more of a synth stab. I can't quite hear exactly what that is. And there's also a very faint hand clap on the two count. In this verse, Tom switches up the lyrics a little and takes out the wasted life refrain from the seventh bar of each eight so that the song doesn't fall into sort of a you know too predictable a pattern. And the second verse really showcases how Tom is enunciating the consonants in this track. If you listen to the way he sings lonely, he basically takes the N out almost completely to make it lonely. And he lets the word down just fall away without again pronouncing that final N. And often when he really pushes that drawl in songs, it can give the track a real sort of sultriness or, you know, sort of sexiness. But the way it's employed here is it's more of a sort of a peaceful, comforting feel that you get from it. The song then moves to the minor third rather than the minor sixth in the bridge section. Uh, the bass line backs off slightly and plays those couplet notes. And you also hear a gentle cymbal hit on the first beat of that bar. Um, and I would guess that this was played with brushes, not sticks to really take the attack off it, but still get that slight, you know, metallic shimmer from the decay of that note. And Benmont starts to play pairs of notes around that minor chord on the organ, and you can also hear a third keyboard part, which I'd guess, and I'm doing a lot of guessing in this episode, um, is that Oberheim synth that he's credited with playing on the album. In the lead out of this middle eight, you get Stan playing some fairly deep floor tom notes before the song goes back to B major with a gentle little Mike Campbell guitar lick. What I like about that section of the song most is that it creates a really nice tension coming off the back of the, the happy major chords in the song so far. And it also doesn't really create darkness per se in the way that going to the minor sixth probably would have done, but it leaves that minor third hanging for a full eight bars making you feel like you're almost, you're almost waiting for a sudden drop on a fairground ride or you sort of, it's that sort of anticipation, that anxiety. So that sort of apprehensive feeling uh, is added to by some more percussion. Stan starts to play some side stick, well, and side stick is where the drummer lays the stick basically on the drum head and taps the rim of the drum with the bottom end of the stick. Over the top of that are also some hand claps, which I guess were overdubbed later, probably, uh, and left deliberately a little off time, so it gives it a bit more of a, that live feel. Um, and this tension in the bridge is lifted completely by that change back up to the B major chord, and Benmont's lead is mixed a little louder, uh, even, and he plays it with a slightly more jagged edge. I don't really know how to explain it better than that. So he's, he's basically sort of shortening up some of the notes if you hear it and it's sort of it's a little bit more staccato not much but just enough to change it just a little bit you know this basically resets the song back to the beginning where we have the same four bars with howie dropping back into his, his groove but stan keeping the side stick going now there's also a glorious conga or bongo trill leading back into the last verse the last verse doesn't change much of anything other than a couple of really 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 subtle little things for example Right at the end of the first eight bars, it's around about 250, 249, 250 mark, you'll hear Stan miss the kick beat and play an extra sort of pedal hi-hat note. 
So it gives a little space there for just a moment and has that tiny bit of color that you wouldn't necessarily hear, um, but you would register subconsciously as a change. Um, There's also that slightly louder ascending guitar jangle starting when Tom finishes the line, feel let down on down, uh, that guitar jangle comes in. And then finishing out with that last chorus, Tom changes the way he sings, love you too much on the word too. The second pass around, it's just another very slightly, very gentle change to make sure the song has a little forward momentum still. Alrighty, folks, it's time for some petty trivia. Uh, Your question from last week was this, not including Tom, who was the youngest of the original Heartbreakers? Was it A, Stan Lynch, B, Ron Blair, C, Belmont Tench, or D, Mike Campbell? Well, I threw this poll out on Twitter again after a short hiatus, and the results did surprise me a little bit. Uh, The majority of you got this one wrong, which doesn't happen very often. No one picked Ron Blair, and I think it's pretty well known that he was the elder statesman of the original lineup. Ron celebrated his 74th birthday in September of this year and was the eldest by a couple of years. Mike Campbell slides in in third place and was born on the same day, February 1st, as my wife, only she's much younger. So the baby of the group was either Stan or Benmont, with most of you picking the Heartbreakers keyboard warrior. However, he was born in 1953, while Stan Lynch came into the world almost two years later in May of 1955. Your question for this week is this. The latest release from the Fillmore 1997 album is a cover of Call Me The Breeze, but which act wrote and originally released the song in 1971? Was it A, Leonard Skinner, B, Chuck Berry, C, J.J. Cale, or D, the Everly Brothers? Okay, back to the song. After that last chorus, the song goes back into the intro progression with the rhythm section picking up a little and Stan playing a nice little shuffle with his brushes on the snare and hat before the song sends us one more little curveball by changing keys again, this time to D, and then we also get a second guitar part coming in with Mike playing some gorgeous suspended notes into the fade-out. And I'd love, love, love to hear the entire track before it was faded as I reckon the boys probably got really funky in that section. Now, thankfully, the only time that I can see that this was ever played live, according to setlist.fm at least, was captured on audio. And in this section, Mike very gently plays those augmented and suspended notes in a couple of different variations over top of the outro, which actually has a very pleasing floor tom roll from Stan to walk it out. Lyrically, the song's pretty straightforward, I'd say. Don't have a wasted life. I love you too much. Paul Zolo says to Tom that he sees it as an affirmative song, and Tom replies, yeah, it's very positive. There again, it has something to say. It's a friendship song, just being kind of sweet. And I think that sweetness is really encapsulated in the line, so when you're lonely and you feel let down, you can call me, I'll come around and treat you nice. You could actually imagine this being sung by a father to his daughter. It's not a romantic song in any way, but a supportive, I got your back sort of sentiment. Very, very cool.
All right, folks, that's it for this week. Um, completing the Iovine trilogy, Long After Dark closes in a similar way to Hard Promises before it and Damn the Torpedoes before that. All three songs drop the tempo on each successive album, but all three are more mood-oriented than sort of really hanging on any of the band members' virtuosity or, you know, the best lyrics that Tom ever wrote. I actually think, honestly, this one might be the pick of the three closers. I'd say that Louisiana Rain is probably, quote-unquote, the better song, but this one feels, you know, just absolutely right, closing out this, at times dark, at times confessional album. It leads you gently offside to with a clear heart and a clear mind. It's yet another song on Long After Dark that doesn't sound a thing like anything the Heartbreakers have recorded up to this point, and yet it somehow dovetails with the rest of the album effortlessly and doesn't sound out of place or jarring at all. And it's one of those that I often forget about until I'm listening to the album and then Benmont's beautiful organ intro kicks in. And at that point, I usually smile and get ready for four and a half minutes of really relaxed vibes. So I'm going to close out Long After Dark by giving A Wasted Life a nice, solid 7 out of 10. Uh, please remember that you can support uh, humanitarian efforts in Ukraine in many different ways, and I would urge you to do so if you have the means, as always. Um, again, I've added a link to the Red Cross donation page in the episode notes for this episode, and I will keep doing that until I don't need to do that anymore. The Tom Petty Project is a very proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network. Go check them out on Twitter, at Deep Dive Podnet. I'm sure you'll find something else you like there. Um, they're good people doing great work, and again, we're adding new members all the time, and I'm hoping that in the next two, three, four, five weeks, um, Seaside Pod Review, my Queen podcast, will also be a part of that network. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. And of course, you can always find me on YouTube. So go follow, like, subscribe as applicable, and leave a review or a rating if you want to tell me how you, that you're enjoying the show. Or if you know what, if you're not enjoying the show, no, tell me privately. Maybe don't leave that in the review. The Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with the Tom Petty Estate in any way. And when you're looking for Tom's music, please visit the official YouTube channel first or go to any of the legit streaming sites um, to find what you're looking for. If you're looking for merchandise, go to TomPetty.com. That is the place to get all your official Tom Petty merch. And don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook if you're not already a member of those groups, as they are excellent fan communities, and they are a lot of fun to hang out in. Until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll be back with you next week with a chat I had with one of the best indie podcasters in the business and a genuinely lovely human being. Also a Tom Petty fan, Corey Morissette. Bye-bye. <laughs>